You're listening to Happy and Holy, the podcast created to help you reorient your life around Jesus, His people, and His mission. Because you don't have a spiritual life, your life is spiritual. You just have to learn to see it that way. I'm your host and mentor, Kate Boyd, and it's time to put on our Jesus goggles and dive in to today's episode. Welcome back, everyone, to the Happy and Holy podcast. We are still in our series about race, and this is the last conversation, at least in this series. I hope to bring more in the future. But today we're going to be talking about Asian Americans um, or even Asians who live in America. And I wanted to include this perspective, especially with coronavirus right now. Um, There was, you know, an uptick in violence and racist action and rhetoric um, towards this segment of our society, um, especially around then, around, around when this virus really took place. And often... Um, when it comes to race, they are left out of the conversation. And so I wanted to bring one of my friends who is an Asian American onto the show to talk about it. And so I think um, this conversation was also really helpful from like a church perspective too. We talked a lot about some of the things that she's experienced in church as well as in society and how we can reflect better on making our bodies of Christ reflect more people, but also just not alienating um, or oppressing um, the ones that are in our midst already, you know, to value them as as part of the body and to use their, their gifts alongside um, of ours, just like we would anyone else. So I'm really um, glad to bring you this thoughtful conversation with Teresa. So let me tell you a little bit more about Teresa. Teresa Kwan is a high-impact leadership speaker, strategist, coach, and founder of Daringly Great Leadership. Her mission is to raise up the next generation of wholehearted, daring leaders and disruptors who will radically transform culture and reset broken systems. She teaches and advises how to lead using integrated leadership practices that are ethical, value-centered, and powerful. She combines a deep intuitive sense with her 26 years of experience working with and alongside powerhouse leaders of tech startups, small and large businesses, faith-based organizations, as well as reputable CEOs and nonprofit executives at places such as the Smithsonian, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and the UN. So as you can see, she's legit in her space but she is also a native Texan, proud Longhorn, and Austinite. Um, and we actually, it's funny, we both live in Texas, but we didn't meet each other until we went to a mutual thing in um, California. So it's funny. Um, she's an Enneagram 7, an avid dreamer. She loves to travel the world and eat food. In fact, her husband is a sushi chef. Um and he makes really great, like, gluten-free treats, if that's your thing. So if you're in Austin and you need some of that, hit them up. And they have a toy poodle named Blackjack that's also adorable. Um, and so I hope that you enjoy getting to know and listening to Teresa and that, um, you know, we leave the conversation being able to better reflect on how we can embody Christ on earth. The purpose of this series is really to talk to a few people of different ethnic backgrounds so that we can see racism through their lens and how it looks against them um, and and people of their ethnic background. And so um, 
and that's both in the world and within the church. So, um, while right now I feel like the conversation is focused largely on racism against black people and rightly so, right. But people aren't necessarily talking about racism and it's other various forms against other subsets of people within our, you know, American population. So I, um, I'm curious to hear from you. What are some of the ways that it sh- it shows up again for Asian people in America? You know, whether they're born here or immigrated here or any of the or even refugees, you know, here, um, and that can be you know examples individually or systemic or blatant or subtle. Like, what are some of those ways that it has shown up? Oh my gosh, where do I begin? I know it's kind <laughs> of like a real. It's a big question. I get that. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and, and then too, it just, yeah, I, yeah, I, I mean, I just where whatever Holy Spirit lets me bring up first. Yeah. Um, or there's some instances that you can think of, and we've talked about it a little bit, say at work, right. For you, mm-hmm. some things that have happened to you or some of your family that, um, you know, sticks out in your brain. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, recently, well, as actually literally the day after the protests began, um, I couldn't hold back. And I felt like, and I, you know, had a conversation with God about it and started posting and sharing my story. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a lot of that, you know, and I can pull up instances from there, but I curated those specifically um, because I heard him, God to tell me like, you can build a bridge. There are so many people who are not friends with anybody that's black, first of all, but they're friends right. with you. And in addition to that, um, that racism is never just outright, I'm going to go lynch someone. That racism can be very subtle. It can be very uh, 100% unintentional, yeah. done in slight. And um, people are incredibly unaware because it is just culturally acceptable to make comments or make slights or make assumptions and et cetera. So, you know, one of the most overt ones that I posted, which I don't know if it was it, I don't know, cause I don't have the full feedback, but I don't know if it instigated the kind of thoughtful evaluation I was hoping it would make was yeah. a very overt statement made to me at, um, a workplace not long ago. And um, I'll be honest, it's not the first time I've gotten that, which is wholly ironic because I don't think that I'm someone who, um, like if you were to meet me or if you were to like meet me behind a curtain and talk to me, unless I reveal things about my ethnic heritage, you may or may not ever like recognize that I'm an actual Asian person. And yet the feedback I've gotten is you, I, you need to be less Asian at work. Hmm. You need to be less Asian. Um, which, which is like, what does that even mean? Right. I was just flabbergasted. <laughs> I, I, and I even said, I was like, I, I, I don't even know what to say or where to begin. Yeah. And that being told to me in the context, meanwhile, that's, I mean, mind you, that's from someone who, and I specifically described this person because it makes the point even more exclamatory Mm-hmm. Is that she? She's uh, came from her. Her parents are both professors. She's uh, white from middle the Midwest. 
um, highly educated, blonde, blue-eyed, lesbian woman, and um, only a few years older than me. So we're the same generation. And yet she has point blank telling me I needed to be less Asian at work. And that she, and she was very heartfelt about it. Like, I, I want you to be wildly successful at work. And, and I'm just observing and hearing feedback. And, and I just need to tell you this for your good. And the feedback is this, you need to be less Asian at work. And I'm like stunned because there's nothing I could, I'm like, I am Asian. How can I not be Asian or even it's less kind of a Asian. binary, right? Like I am Asian or I am not. There is. Yeah. No... Right. I mean, yeah. it's not anything I can ever turn down or turn off or erase. I mean, I can wear blue contacts, bleach my hair blonde, and I'm still going to be looking Asian. So, um, and you can't erase who I am. And so to me, like statements like that or statements or um, uh, whether they're assumptions, like for example, uh, I love food and, mm-hmm. uh, I post food pictures a lot. And lately over the quarantine, I posted a lot of Asian food and someone said, so do you ever eat anything that's not Asian? And I'm, <laughs> I'm like, we've gone to dinners together and we've like, you know, it, it was just like, okay, so what is that supposed to mean? And they're like, no, it's just, I'm just really curious. And I'm like, I don't even know what to say, right? Like, um, or here's another is oh here in the church context. Yeah, that say, was my next question. So, oh yeah, no, there's so much in the church context, and I have had yeah. so many face-offs with you know then who was my executive pastor, um, and but then yeah anyway. So the way you know so many would be like, oh, we need Teresa to show up and start bringing her Korean prayer style, and I'm like, uh, okay. Um, I get what they're referring to, which is the stereotypical wailing and loud raised hands, like laments, um, powerful, passionate prayers uh, that Koreans um, often are demarcated, you know, those who are Christian. However, the irony is, is that I might be Korean, born and raised in Texas, conceived in Texas. Uh, I, when I went to a Korean church, it, it was not one that was praying quite like that. Um, and I had never really been a part of a church that had been like that. And, and I'd been a part of Korean churches and non-Korean churches. So it was like, okay, so you're just gonna, so like, so, so I, I'm giving this example and I'm sure somebody's listening going like, well, what's wrong with that? Like that's a compliment that you're that we're assuming you bring that kind of passion or your people or that. And so it's like your people are like passionate like that or but it's like, can you just invite me because you want you, you know, that my prayers are powerful, Mm -hmm. whether I'm Korean or not Korean, a woman or not a woman or whatever that is um, that I'm singled out simply because. I have a Korean, uh, I'm of Korean descent. Right. Um, another version would be, I mean, oh, man, talk about go to town. Um, you know, for whether or not it's there, it's still in the ranks. But, you know, um, 
early 2000s, uh, it was very much in like Christianity Today, like everybody was talking about the largest church in the world um, and in Korea and Yoido and all that stuff. And guess what? I have visited um, and hated it. Um, And so I would be, I don't know why people would like, you know, I'd be working at my desk in my office. I, I had an office. Uh, and people would pull up a chair, interrupt my work, not even ask if they can talk to me. This includes my pastor and sit in front of me, you know, like flip the chair, straddle it, sit in front of me, mm-hmm. men. And they would say, I want you to tell me this. What is it about Koreans that um, like, can you bring some of that Korean thing so we can have the biggest church in the world? Or like, you know, like you must be so proud of your people because they have the largest church in the world or help me understand like, you know, like our Koreans just, they must be the like chosen people. They just flock to church or like, you know, Korea, Korea is like almost entirely churched. First of all, all of those statements are absolutely incorrect and completely not true. Yeah. Um, and I used to be so upset because I would read those articles in Christianity Today and I would want to write the editor. But I would be like, I know better because I have these conversations every day and no one listens to me anyway, so I'm not going to do it. Right. So that's right there. That's a that's an example of the kind uh-huh. of oppression Uh That I can't, I don't even, I choose not to even use my voice because I've been told, even if I'm the Korean person, right? And I come up from a Korean heritage that I don't know best about my own people, right? So it's, there's this double-edged sword. Um, Or, or they would also say, oh, Koreans are so hardworking and like, and you're, you know, and so, and they would always um, proceed a big ask for me to either work over the weekend or start making some crazy errands, all this stuff by saying that they know Koreans are incredibly hard workers and that I come from a hardworking ethic with my parents who are immigrants. And then they would ask me to do stuff that nobody else had to do. Right. And then they would pull in the servant, being a servant leader and being a servant in the church and like blah, blah, blah. Um, other examples, would be how, I mean, some of the like uh, male-female dynamic and how I was raised right as an Asian woman to know what like, and that like culturally that the country already knew what Ephesians meant when women were supposed to submit to their husbands. Yeah. You know, uh, I've had more, I guess, salacious comments and shockingly, very sexual in nature from men who oh, probably anybody in that church would say are incredibly holy and so awesome. Like God, they're so godly right. uh, say things to me that insinuated, you know, asking for sexual favors or always being attracted to Asian women because they're so exotic mm. and, or that, um, that I probably understand how to please a man better than a white woman, like things li- like this, like it, yeah. it was, and, and like who's, no one would believe me right. when I would even bring up some of the, like, and it, it, there's, there's darker stories there, but um, I had to leave an organization that I was a parachurch organization that I was a part of because um, 
I was accused of lying when someone tried to rape me. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. the, they, they, they t- put it as like that. It's my Asian-ness that's seductive and that they could, that I was seducing them, even if I wasn't aware that my Asian-ness was seducing them to to like stoke their sinful nature, all that stuff. And it was terrible sure. because they all, they all sided with the white male. Yeah. And which has been, I mean, first of all, that's a big theme across the board is, and right. we're seeing another wave of it now, even um, of the misogyny that is in some of those spaces. Right. Um, but then to even, you know, and we, we would hear it all the time, right? Like in purity culture, when, where I grew up, when you probably did too, Mm -hmm. was, you know, it's my responsibility to do all I can so that they don't have bad thoughts. Right. Um, but when that's tied to something like your ethnicity, you're like, how, how am I even supposed to, (laughs) what am I supposed to do about that? You know? Right. Then it's a whole nother level of, yeah, just like, Weird. I'm really sorry that happened to you. That's mm, thank you. Yeah, that's why I was like, oh, I don't know where to begin. Just okay. stop me I when know. you know it's. Um, but you're right. It's like there's so there's there's a like I said, um, there's so many layers. It's yeah. incredibly complex. Yes. Um, but in this specific instance, my identity as an Asian woman um, was used against me. Um, in a way that that was saying that it was my Asian-ness because I was an Asian woman in my appearance, even if I dressed modestly, even if I wasn't, I was, I was, you know, born from the, I mean, I was definitely a disciple of the kiss dating goodbye and passion and purity and all of that. I mean, I'm definitely from the purity movement. So, uh, but like that, it's like, and I remember the comment, another comment that was made with it, which is like, oh, now I understand why um, Arab nations require women to wear burqas. And I was like, I can't believe this is this conversation is happening in a church. Yeah. Like it, it's your, your, you know, so anyway, so it's, it's a, it's a weird, it's so, there's so much. Right. And That's so what we're, up. we're definitely seeing that, you know, it's obviously cultural and, and it's, you know, this white supremacy is even is baked into the way that we're created. And, and as it comes into the church, some of our church structures have been made that way, or some of the people that make up the church structures mm-hmm. have done that. Um, and then, you know, it, it pushes out people or keeps people down. Um, and obviously not okay because we know that God's vision for the church is that every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, right. And that's what heaven's going to look like when we get there and we're worshiping together. And so when I hear stories like this, or I even like see all the churches, um, you know, separated right by their ethnicity, um, whether by choice or just that it was so uncomfortable in a predominantly white space, um, you know, I just, I wonder then what we're missing by not having these different cultures together. Um, And so I'm curious if there's anything that you would say would be especially that white spaces are missing because we don't have Koreans or 
Chinese or Japanese, like any of these other cultures in them, or so few of them, and we certainly don't elevate their voices as well as we could. Um, okay, so may I make a, a point out something you said that sounds yes. like an assumption that I want okay. to to yes, speak please. to is um, you said your the assumption. I'm not going to do it word for word. Not very good at that. That's okay. Um, is that uh, say for example that Korean churches or black churches or Hispanic churches happen because maybe they're not as respected or accepted or their voices heard or their contributions, uh, uh, you know, that, yeah, that yeah. community is not happening inside of a quote white church. Um, and so I want to speak to that because I don't, um, I'm, I, I can't answer. I'm not the one person that can answer for anybody of any other ethnic descent sure. or even all Koreans for that matter, or all Asians. Um, but I know that when I had attended Korean churches, it mm -hmm. didn't have to do with anything with rejection. Sure. Yeah, no, that's a good clarification. And I didn't necessarily mean that either. Mm -hmm. um, but some people can assume but, that. Who, yes. Who, Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I mean, it could be very well part of somebody's story, right? Yeah. Like where yeah. they just never felt like they fit in. I mean, I definitely felt that going to um, uh, both a Korean church and also a quote yeah. white church, right? Yes. Um, or even a black church. And I even went to a Hispanic church for a while. So like, uh, and I, you know, part of my journey and my story with God is about um, ecumenism and being, um, mm -hmm a part of many parts of a very broken body. Um, and so, so I can speak from that space for very personally and say that sure. um, even in retrospect or even in the moment where I didn't feel good enough or accepted and it didn't have to necessarily deal with my own childhood wounds or attachment theory and all that stuff. It's just more, it was just really obvious um, when people would overlook me or everybody else but me or, you know, like, and, and that wasn't just church contacts. That's like story of my life, like yeah, being in yeah. mixed racial kind of, um, uh, groups, but mm -hmm. ironically and truly, I'll tell you that I've never felt as left out in a Mexican church or a black church and, or a Korean church. The place that I felt the most shunned or left out or not included or, you know, just stuck out like a sore thumb, even if I stuck out like a sore thumb amongst the black community, <laughs> like yeah. I felt more um, isolated and um, yeah, and it was definitely, I don't, I'm pretty sure it wasn't me. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's a, it's an interesting phenomenon uh, because right. And like even and let's just do the flip side. So I've I, I've gone to Korean church and I've chose not to go to Korean church for my own theological reasons, not just because of some social acceptance or non-acceptance. Yeah. Um. You know, for me, like when I look at heaven and uh, in Revelation, they don't talk about here are the white people and here are the Korean people and uh -huh. here are the black people. You know, th it's it's every tribe, every tongue. Like it's, it's heaven. And um, I really believe that when we come together as church, it's really meant to be a reflection of joining in the courses of holy, holy, holy and falling on the ground and, mm -hmm. you know, worshiping the lamb. And 
when I look at the way churches are segregated, I don't necessarily see that kind of unity because people are too busy looking at each other versus looking at him. And, um, and then too, of course, there's the cultural element. So, so I've gone to Korean churches and felt such connection and yet also either not been Korean enough because, you know, like there's also other levels, but also too, because every culture kind of brings in, um, so every, like, like the, the, what's the best way to put it? I feel like when everyone talks about going back to the church of Acts or how Jesus, you know, and his 12 disciples, uh-huh. uh, and, and I think through church history and whether people agreed or disagreed with it, like one, one fact is true is that everything has been culturally contextualized. Correct. So, um, for the white churches to say that there is no white culture or whiteness or Anglo-Saxon or Westernness culture in church in an American church yeah. is lying to themselves because yeah. and it's be- and this is close to my heart because this is literally what I'm writing about. So um, it's because they have no other frame of reference nor Mm -hmm. any interest in having another frame of reference. Mm -hmm. And I was the same way until it was sort of thrust upon me. Um, And then it was beautiful and it, I've been fascinated and captivated by it ever since, but yeah, they, it's sort of like when you, it's sort of a silly example, but like when you're talking to say a British person and you're like, can you stop doing your accent and, mm-hmm. and, you know, as though like our accent is the normal one and everyone mm-hmm. else's is like an, a put on, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's like a weird semantic thing, but it's one of those like ways in which we sort of see ourselves as the ideal, right. Or the right. Normal. Right. Like the norm, right. Yeah. You, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's part of it is um, so I agree a hundred percent. And you could say the same for someone who comes from Africa or who goes, who comes from a hundred percent Korean involved. Like, I mean, sure. And um, I know that you're well-traveled I'm well-traveled or at least like globally connected enough to have a bit more sophistication than someone who's probably never left 20 miles of their home and, or their church community. And so, you know, it does matter Especially, I feel like now, just the increasing globalization of all things, like it's, it Mm -hmm. has, you can't stop it. It's always been there, but it's increasingly, the connectedness is increasingly so. Like the fact that, I don't know what, 11 nations were having George Floyd protests in the Mm -hmm. same few days that it happened in America. Like I know I spoke to a lot of, uh, white Americans who are like, I don't get it. I think it's beautiful, but why would they stand up for something that's wrong in America? And I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> we're way more connected than that, you know? Um, right. But uh, so, but my point being is that I think what, let's put it this way, that I feel like, especially, um, especially, well, 
I, it's not a blame, but like as white supremacy and white flight and whiteness becomes yeah. a superior culture or a superior way of being or people group or whatever, that um, that people have to actively choose not to just magnetize to like, you know, like the like begets like, right? Peas yeah. in a pod. It's just so much more comfortable and you understand one another and it's familiar and et cetera. Right. And I think it's becoming increasingly easier to not be exposed to other, to choose whether people say it's subconscious or conscious to choose not like to choose to segregate even socially to mm -hmm. not. And, and even if they encounter other, they encounter it as other alien. Does that make sense? Like, whereas yeah. you can go to like Mexico and be like, Oh, this is awesome. And I love their markets and like, you know, their food yeah. and their culture and all this stuff. But you're like just going as a, uh, a tourist to right. be entertained versus yeah. to absorb and understand a people and, you know, do the more critical thinking of, well, what does that mean? You know? Yeah. Um, one example of this is, and, and I'm having to reevaluate all the mission trips I've ever been to. Um, yeah. is, I'm with you there. Yeah. <laughs> I, I is, uh, I remember going to, I've been to Mexico, Honduras, El Salvador, and then other places, but specifically Latin American countries. And I remember, you know, organize, helping organize and worship team and this and that. But I remember going there and they already had a worship team and yeah. we had a worship team. Yeah. So they were like, awesome, just do it together, you know? And, uh, but I remember, and I feel this too. I remember feeling this too. I remember feeling like, oh, that's not helping me worship their style of song or <laughs> what they're right. singing yeah. or, um, that's it just there was this almost like superiority of like oh you guys just don't know the latest songs yet or um or like oh there's a better way to do the like drum strumming I mean the guitar strumming because that will make it more melodic versus like clap worthy or you know what you know what I mean yeah. like just even the style and super trying to impose in a nice way thinking that we're modernizing their worship team. Right. Right. And, um, or, or then I remember times where it's like, okay, then the American team will go and then lead the song. And then the Mexican team will lead the song. And I remember different sides of the room and they were sitting in different sides of the room where like when the Mexican team would lead, then the Mexican people would be like, ah, you know, like very excited. Um, and then the other side just kind of like, this is awkward. And then when the American team would be leading, then the Mexicans are like trying, but they're feeling awkward in the American, you know, team. Yeah. So it's, it's weird. It was a weird, it's weird to think back to that and be like, why do we feel like we have to homogenize that? Yeah. And or why is there a superiority complex in the American church? Yeah. 
because I didn't see any Mexican worship leaders try to tell us that this is how we should do it. Yeah. So interesting. So what are, like, where do we go from here? What are some of the practical things that we can do or that white people can do, you know, whether that's to elevate or to educate ourselves or even just things to be aware of um, or things to step into as we try to be more, you know, honoring and respectful of Asians around us. And I don't, it feels very us and them. And that's not what I mean, but it's really hard to like communicate it in the right way. Um, you know, not so that it feels like tokenism, right? Like we're just trying to like do it so that we have like, we've, well, we've got the Asian person that we can put up there and now we're diverse. Like how do we actually create better environments for all of us? Because we all benefit from, from everyone being there. You know what I mean? What are, what are some of the practical ways that we might be able to head that direction? We won't solve it right away Mm. or maybe ever, but to do better? Um, yeah, I, I, I'll share what I believe um, okay. and what um, at least some of the things that I'm, I've been moving towards and continuing to move towards. Um, and then I will also include some things I've read from thought leaders in diversity and inclusion Mm-hmm. that I'm still wrestling with, to be honest, right? So um, so first, I think it has to start not from differences. So, for mm-hmm. example, not to say, oh, what's the Asian church down the street? Let's go do a joint service with them, right? So that's identifying di- and, and moving from difference to towards collaboration. And I think a lot of churches try that. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, one of the things I always say is that I always hated the colors of Benetton. I I know they're not around anymore, but because they literally had a person of every race or at least representing the major kind of races on their advertisements. And um, that while symbolically I can see meaning there, uh, there like, you know, the intention that's putting put forth, but, but the thing is that people, and this sounds kind of cynical, but I think this is a time to, to get real, um, yeah. is that people are lazy. Yeah. And because you are able to have a photo op, the, if the, as long as a lot of people stop at the optics is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And the fair. symbolism. Um, and, but that like, but then let's zoom out and think about, I always think about heaven and it's not about the optics nor the symbolism. Right. <laughs> There's a lot of symbolism, right. Through revelation um, and Isaiah and every other book that refers to the end days, but it's not. And God, Jesus could have symbolically hung on the cross if in like literally without being nailed and made his point, quote unquote. But that's so different than entering 100% into it mm. 
with the joy and the suffering, aka conflict that can come from it, yeah. and um, for a greater cause. So, if we start with the differences, meaning like, oh, we're such a white church, or oh, there's like the one black person, so we're doing okay, or whatever that mm-hmm. is, and I've I've been saying all these things from a I've been in the room, <laughs> you know, yes. conversations. Um, it, I don't know that we're going to achieve the right outcome because it began with optics. So that's one. However, I'm going to contrast that with what, like, for example, Abram Kendry is saying that uh, if you, he, how to be anti-racist is his, one of his, hot books right now, the New York uh-huh. Times bestseller. But his point, he underscores that I still wrestle with being someone who has worked in politics and government as well, because my degree is in public public administration. Um, he was saying that true change can only be achieved through pub, like policy change. Um, I must, I'm wrestling with that. I can't disagree because the times that like the greatest amount of change was enforced in America had to do with things like Jim Crow or the emancipation proclamation or mm-hmm. even the, um, the spreading of the information like Juneteenth. Right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so I don't wrestle with that from, a, you know, how much government should be in public sphere or private sphere. That's not, I'm not talking about political philosophy right now. I think for me, it's what I wrestle with is that those laws, while they changed how we're quote required to legally interact. So it's legalism, right? Right. Um, that didn't change hearts. Which right. is why we're facing There's what we're facing today. the top down and the bottom up, right? We've got to have mm-hmm. both. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can so, so it's, uh, the, you know, um, yeah. The approach I would take, and and I'm speaking from a someone who grew up biculturally, someone who started um, internationally traveling at a very young age and am in love with I travel to encounter culture. So mm-hmm. like, so for me, I'm just a student of, of differences, right? Like in appreciating the differences and also the commonalities. Yeah. Um, I, I mentioned, for example, you know, I, I have a really big heart for ecumenism and even in like my twenties, I did so many things across the UT campus um, to underscore that point that we are one body and we have way more in common um, as the body of Christ and more powerful as the body of Christ mm-hmm. than it is to wage war on one another from theological interpretations of the Bible. And, you know, so same thing. That really mm-hmm. comes from my having to grow up and reconciling two very different cultures in my upbringing. Uh, And yet I embody that. Um, And the way I have found my way forward of reconciliation, even within myself is to find the places where 
where it's really about humanity. Mm. And it comes down to the, the star, like what Simon Sinek says, start with the why. It's like, why does someone choose to do this? Right. And that why can be expressed through different hows and what's. So his whole thing is start with the why, then talk about the how, and then you discuss the what. So we always look at the what, what we are doing. Yeah. That's different. Um, and how we're doing it, that's different. We're not looking at why. And if we look at the why, we'll see that we're way more in common yeah. than we are different. If we stop looking at the what and the how and stop complaining about this is the best way to do it, this is the wrong way to do it, or you look different, or you shouldn't wear that, or, you know, don't have this political party, or you shouldn't blah, blah, blah. Oh, all those things, like we're focusing on the wrong level. Um, and no matter what, like if you focus there and try to homogenize, I think that's also the wrong thing. Uh, it, then that's always only going to be surface level and will be very pretty optically, but the truth fact of the matter is, is why. And if you understand the why, and can get your heart there. If people can have conversations uh, and think from an emotion, like it with emotional intelligence of why someone may respond in a specific way, like how people respond and what happens after that is very different. Like why are people grieving right now around the protests and racism? We can point it back to a single event right now, which is, you know, uh, the George Floyd killing and protests that have catalyzed so many hows of how people have responded and what is happening as a result of that. But we all are tied back to that original thing. And so if our conversations in our, even our greater, deeper, more than two second thinking can go to the place of humanity, exercising what I call curious empathy, which is a twist on something Brene Brown says in her yeah. book, Rising Strong, is that if you start with, well, tell me a little bit more I want to hear and understand where you're coming from, or is there a story or like something must have happened to you that helped you think, start, begin making that um, judgment or choice, or you sound really hurt and that makes me really sad. And I'd like to hear about what happened there. Or, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways to, and, and I will say that those kinds of responses and questions are so disarming, <laughs> you know, yeah. like any raging person, you know, it might take a few times of exercising that, but any person, if you express your heart in a place of like, oh, but I really want to know you, right? And understand, instead of jumping to the judging of what is they're saying or how they're responding. It's like, let's get to the why. Um, And if we get to the why, and there's a lot of story there, you have to be patient for that. 
um, and there has to be true exchange um, and not an imposition of better or um, or even advice of how to fix it. I yeah. think we can start building bridges that will help us I, I still even hate the word diversify, <laughs> diversify yeah. um, the greater body. So, yeah. So wishing everyone more uncomfortable, but fruitful conversation. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for sharing your experiences and um, challenging assumptions and, you know, sharing your wisdom too. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me and asking hard questions and, (laughs) and being here to listen and sharing these stories. Um, Cause I think there are so many people who may not have the courage quite yet to ask the questions um, or even have quote access to someone to befriend someone of color or even have this kind of level of conversation with them. So I hope many listen and have a chance to, to really start, start with the why, like start with your heart and start changing there um, before you start posting more memes. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Happy and Holy. If you're so inclined, you can leave a review on your favorite podcast player to help more people find and learn alongside of us. See you next time.